0: Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show.
1: Hey, Brent. How's it going? Hey. It's going awesome, Alan. How about you? I'm, I'm doing great. Did you have a good fourth? Doing
0: great. I didn't do anything at
1: all. Not a little bit?
0: Not even a little bit. I did nothing. I don't think I think I was asleep by like 10 p.m. I'm pretty boring. So what are you doing there? All I see is the top of your head and a bunch of moving around.
1: I'm moving around and got a top of my head.
0: I did press the record button. We skipped a week of podcasts and I forgot how to do a podcast. It's a little bit difficult. I could not remember what to plug in where and I forgot to put headphones on. And then just uh, I'll tell a quick little story.
1: It's like riding a bike, right?
0: It is a little bit. So I always do the podcast recording from my Mac, which we are today. The other day, I don't know whether it was a Zoom update or a Linux update, because I took two both at once. And then ever since then, sort of randomly, Zoom crashes very horribly on my Linux machine. So horribly that once it crashes, my whole desktop is locked. Like like everything is frozen and in the GNOME shell because I'm on Ubuntu and then maybe two or three minutes later it just then it finally crashes completely takes me back to the login screen I have to log in and start over so I thought, well I don't have time to debug this and figure out what the hell happened so I will just begin using my Mac it's probably a faster machine and does things better than my that's what I'm doing and but then uh there was a reason for this story oh I just kind of I'm used to turning the other way and I moved instead of using the Mac camera, I switched my other camera to use the Mac. Anyway, long story. Nobody cares because nobody can see anything. So uh, how's work?
1: Yeah. Anything new right. and exciting? No, All I right. need
0: to. Yeah. <laughs> Brent is so thrilled with life right now. I don't know, man. Let's do a podcast. Yay. Podcast.
1: Yeah. No, it, TGIF. Um,
0: Should we start recording another day of the week so you have some more energy, Mr. Breather?
1: No, you know, one of the things we might want to do is I can look at the schedule and rebalance, but now that I am basically working from work more often than not, we might want to talk about going back to our morning times.
0: Okay i got some topics to go over um but i was insulted
1: what? by i
0: we got a quarterly business review for my org with a whole bunch of execs across the company and one of them said alan your beard is too long
1: <laughs> and <laughs> I,
0: I said how long is too long
1: <laughs>
0: he said i don't know but that's it.
1: But I know it when I see it.
0: I know it when I see it and that's too long.
1: Yeah, I I don't agree with this.
0: And I I again I we don't have a lot of hierarchy at uni, but Unity, Uni, Uni is the new short name for Unity. But I the words that I considered did not come out of my mouth, so that was good. Let's go. So I want to lead into some questions. But first of all, I wanted to tell you something I never told you before.
1: Oh, a secret?
0: A secret. I still think it's the right thing. I still think it's the right thing. So as you know, way back in late December, early January, we moved the hosting of the A-B Testing Podcast from uh, self-hosting to Anchor.fm. It's worked out. They're owned by Spotify. It's worked out very well. There were a few little glitches at the very beginning, but for the most part, it's worked. I've been pretty happy with how well it's worked. Like no, no big complaints.
1: Okay.
0: But one of the things you can do is set up, you can add supporters, which is, which means people can like sponsor the podcast. I've never advertised this. Okay. And even in the text on it, I just... So you have an option to turn it on or off, turned it on. And then in the text, I is like, you can customize your listener support options. And I said, supporting the podcast is completely optional. All proceeds go to supporting our community through sponsorships, scholarships, and other support for our three listeners. So which I believe in. So we have a separate account. Now we're an LLC. I put uh, any Payment I get for speaking uh, for about that are that's about modern testing or any other things like that go into this account. The only thing we pay out of that account is, well, Anchor's free, so nothing there anymore. Uh, the modern testing org bill is about three dollars a month uh, for hosting. And then oh. then then the yearly domain. So I put it on I put it on AWS and just hosted it myself versus paying for hosting. And it's super cheap because we get like, you know, three users a month going there.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: It's the, the account is there, and when things open back up again, if I was on the ball, we should have sponsored someone's ticket for Test Bash Home, but I didn't think ahead well enough, and I got to kind of get more of this mindset. So, the short story is not in it to make money. And also, a lot of, you know, I am a Patreon member of some podcasts, and because I like the podcast, I want to give them some money, and they're doing it as a business a little bit different. But part of me, like one of the reasons I don't want to push this, and uh, uh, I'm mentioning it because I want to reiterate the fact we're not doing this to make money. We're doing this whole podcast because we want to help people navigate the world of software better. Right. So as mo- most of you know, it costs $0. Like, there's one, There's one podcast I listen to where if you sponsor the podcast, you can hang out with them on a Discord channel screw that noise uh, I do not want perks ever associated with these sponsorships because I think it, it it creates a class system that it's already echoed enough in society I don't want to recreate it in our podcast
1: there's so, actually there, there's there's actually a different phenomenon and um I forget the author but some of the books that i read uh, that led me to behavioral economics which then led me to data science right once right now we're producing the podcast and i'm and i'm glad that that actually you didn't tell me about this until now and we'll see later if i regret you even telling me now but i'm glad this is entirely optional because things change once the reason why you're doing it Uh, shifts from being a social contract to a fiscal contract.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and uh, I just want to make sure, like if someone wants to put money in the kitty, you'll know where it's going and that's fine. I do want to do more outreach with the podcast, but again, I'm using all of my, probably the canonical example is I made an intro to modern testing course for ministry of testing get a little chunk of money every quarter there. That just goes into our AB testing bank account. We can use that to probably put back in administrative testing um, or other sites or things we we care about. I don't want to do perks because I think it creates a cast system.
1: Yep. And, and it changes our reason for being.
0: Exactly, exactly. So yeah. it's there. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave it on because I think it does help us with reach. And I just don't want it to ever feel like it's anything super special that said um we have our actually with me and us never advertising it someone uh committed to being a sponsor at, at a I think the minimum level which is great I don't want anybody to actually do more than that and uh, they may stop after a month but one of the things you can do on anchor here's the one little perk you get and uh if you don't want to sponsor us and want still want this same perk I will find I'm happy to find a way for you to do it in fact, I know the way for you to do it. So one thing you can do on Anchor if you sponsor someone is you can leave them a voice message. And okay. Larry left us a voice message and I'm go I will I'll play it a little in a little bit. And, uh, but if you don't want to, if you don't want to do the sponsorship or you don't feel like it, you can't afford it, totally fine. But if you want to have your question actually in an audio form, just send me a freaking wave file or an MP3 and I'll, but I'll put it on there. Happy to take your questions in mailbag or anywhere in the one of the three.slack.com. Sorry, my dog is bringing me toys now and we'll answer <laughs> your questions. So anyway, uh, he left the voice message, but then he asked the same question, same questions in our Slack group. And there were some answers I wanted to go a little bit deeper. I thought for Larry, for anybody else, we would have answered these questions anyway, but I just wanted to tie in how I just, it made sense to tie this all together and tell this story. So thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. And hopefully the community appreciates it. We'll find a way to, as with everything with AB testing, we're just going to find a way to pay this forward. But uh, in the meantime, it may be good to have some discussions about his questions Makes sense. So you with me so far, Brent?
1: I am. I'm looking at our text, and I'm wondering on on the supporter thing. I'm wondering if you can change it and just clearly call out. You know, just click the X in the upper right. Like it defaults to to something I think is way more expensive than anyone should should pay. Oh,
0: I've only ever looked at it as an administrator. So let me find the right window again. Tell me, tell me what it should say live yeah. podcasting as we change our crap. Okay. I'm ready. So I'm going to share screen. Oh God. Make it hard for me. Yeah. Right. See oh gross. Yeah. 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 I see. I see. Can right, they, so they choose their own number? I don't know. What happens I don't like those numbers. I don't either.
1: Yeah. No, and I don't know what happens. Oh, I guess you pick a selection and do this. Right.
0: But here you say it's entirely optional. And then here you can just put in parentheses, click the X in the upper right or upper left. Okay. I'm going to save that. And then, uh, we should probably get going with the question. Right. So anyway, I wanted to mention that because it was contextually seemed appropriate and I wanted to congratulate Larry's being the first one. And, th- and th- I thank you for that. We're going to make, we're going to do something fun with that donation. And let me go to where the heck is questions. Right? And actually I wanted to start with the third question because that's the one I left the voicemail about. In fact, let's listen to that message now. I have been using designed by contract in the Eiffel programming language using Eiffel Studio for about 20 years i find it very shocking and surprising that in that 20 years that other mainstream languages java c# Sharp, python swift go uh, whatever you have that those languages have not picked up design by contract and made it a part of their compiler And I'm wondering if you guys can speak to that uh, issue as to why these major languages have not picked up design by contract, because it's such an outstanding way of ensuring correct behavior between client and supplier code. Okay, so Brent, um, I've actually have some experience here, but I want to start with you and talk about like, what do you know about this design by contract? Do you know anything about it, or a little bit about it, or have you looked into it at all?
1: Uh, I have not done any of those things. But in terms of, right, it, it the way it's phrased makes it sound like it is a a formal acronym, like designed by contract.
0: Deep, well, it's ac- it's it's a it's often referred to as DBC, which is an initialism, not an acronym. But go on.
1: But interface contract discussions and things like that—I've had lots of uh, discussion around this. Makes it from the context, it, it feels like it's. Um, I'm trying to decide: is it is it a new sort of agile-based technique that no. I'm just now becoming familiar with, or is this something closer to sort of the the assert paradigm that we've kind of had with us forever? It, that it's it sometimes it's, it's work. Both.
0: It's well. Okay. They often work, so right. it's very close to the assert paradigm. And it's in the case of Eiffel, it's the difference with Eiffel is it's built into the programming language. I don't know if other languages where it's built in as a design construct. Now I haven't done much programming with Eiffel or no programming with Eiffel, but I, I'm at least somewhat familiar with it. And there's a construct I won't go into because anyone can Google this. Where in the beginning of your function you can list basically some requirements that let you validate some inputs as they come in, which oh. is a good thing to do and, and yeah. make sure some things are within a range. Now, a whole bunch of stuff to mention there though, that you want to talk about. I'm not going to let you keep my words going here. This sort of construct we did manually. So I don't know how, actually maybe you didn't, maybe you did. So I, I spent a chunk of my early career working in the guts of Windows and not the deep guts, but the API level guts, user mode APIs. And those were filled with, on debug builds especially, but not entirely, asserts to make sure inputs were valid and expected and within a range. Uh, those weren't all checked. Checked. What kind of word is checked? Those weren't all checked in the retail version, but we. Running the debug version would catch a lot of poor callers of Windows APIs. Some of those could be caught later. Anyway, asserts, just checking inputs that way. This is, but that's using the language or the function or adding, like you see a lot of functions. If I were to go look at Windows source code today, a lot of those old APIs, the first several, several lines are filled with error correction. There was, and this is available within. Uh, Microsoft's implementation of C now, but if you remember the annotations, the source code annotations we use for prefix and prefast for native code at Microsoft, those are internal yep. tools. Those source code annotations were a version of design by contract. It, it's putting the annotations, giving, giving, and again, not in the compiler or in the in the runtime, but at least a, giving an analysis engine an idea of how parameters were being used so they could do a static analysis of the contracts between functions. Makes sense. Yep. And then I don't know how much you've done in C sharp. Uh, have you ever used code contracts in C sharp?
1: Uh, I think so. So
0: code contracts in C sharp, which are I don't, they don't let me write code anymore. They say, Alan, you're a good manager. I guess, but you'd certainly have to be a better manager than you are a coder, so you can't do it anymore. But <laughs> same thing, um, you just do uh, like contract.requires and you put, it's, it's the requirement. It's an, annot- it looks like an annotation, but it's a functional annotation, a runtime annotation that makes sure that your contracts are, uh, between no, functions sorry. are are observed and enforced. For example, nope. if I'm going to, the canonical example is I have a function called a banking function. And I'm going to call deposit or withdraw and you test it with the happy path values and everything works. And then some smart guy like me comes along and decides to withdraw negative $500. And I get a little boost to my checking account because it's stupid. But what we want to do instead is through something like contract requires. And again, you could do this with code also and just reject it, but what the contracts do is you can put in like contract requires, uh, withdrawal amount is greater greater than zero, and it would just fail with the fail with the better error. So it's it's I believe it's in the diagnostics library in C in C sharp or .net. That makes sense.
1: It, it's in some regards. So one of the biggest complaints around using asserts is people will often use asserts for flow control, which is it.
0: Well, and the asserts don't help unless you have retail asserts built in, they're not going to help when you actually run your code for customers.
1: Right. Whereas the contract does seem to be a a better construct around uh, flow control and sort of doing a search simultaneously that then does have that production benefit. Now, in terms of, you know, the question around our thoughts on that as it relates to, TDD, right? I think that's where you're going with the, the conversation.
0: Eventually. I have more examples to give,
1: but sure. Oh, all right. Go ahead.
0: So I was going to say a little bit at Unity. Um, Back when we, I'm not sure if it's still being used or not, but back in the old days when I had a little QA team that I dissolved, side note, we were working quite a bit in part of our business with a very well-documented and very cool tool called PACT, P-A-C-T. Website is PACT.io. And it's just a, a pretty easy to use test framework that helps you build and enforce contracts within a server. Actually, if I remember right, it was one of the it actually wasn't someone in QA, it was actually one of the developers driving this. It was pretty cool. It never it never really caught on enough, I think, to get a lot of usage, but the people that used it were pretty happy with it. The usage, the availability is there, and I think there's probably I know Python has a design by contract library. It is not a, like Eiffel is the only language I know that it is built into the language. And I actually looked, I was surprised Go didn't have this, but it doesn't. But most languages, I believe, probably have a plugin, a extension that would allow you to do something similar to design by contract if you you wished. And then
1: Pact, of course, is just kind of cool.
0: So now, moving on to the rest of the questions.
1: Right, so what what DBC is doing, if I understand it correctly, is it's basically significantly tightening how it can be called, right? It's putting constraints around its inputs and its outputs. TDD... I'm trying to think so it does seem like it's a different path to get there well, like the, it through
0: let, let me summarize uh, often a lot of whether it's TDD or just or unit testing without TDD right your a chunk of your unit testing is making sure that your happy path works and that your and that some error cases are being handled correctly the error cases are automatically handled by the contract right you can't pass right. you can't pass bad data it's it's caught by the contract that's right. no, no, not the data the, parameters
1: so I don't have experience with this one. And, I, and it's funny because you mentioned Eiffel. And, and then when you mentioned it, I just flashed back uh, because I actually I have done programming in Eiffel in college. <laughs> uh, and I, I just looked up on the Internet because I was actually surprised the thing's still around. And apparently it is. Uh, and back in college, oh, I hated this thing it was part of a class around object-oriented design and it would go through seven compilation cycles and each cycle was literally like an hour long. Like it, it's compilation phase was painfully slow. I, 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 I brought a re. I got really good at looking at the code really carefully before I said compile. Uh, and I also brought a book which I completed reading uh, <laughs> during that lab exercise. Hated that experience. When I think about TDD, like certainly one of the thing about TDD is building up your 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 test suite. But the angle, like TDD isn't isn't just another way of getting your unit tests online the the whole purpose of Tdd is is essentially the test first approach and the value add from the test first approach so on that front I'm I'm not yet connecting the dots around how let me DBC let me helps. let me connect some dots okay a
0: lot of people say Tdd isn't about testing and they're right it's not What I've found is when I or people I've worked with do use TDD as an approach to create their unit tests, is they end up designing better code because they have to think about their design up front. They have to think about what their code does in the first place. Right. Similarly, if you if you are designing your contracts, which are just asserts up front. Uh, they're also making you think about the way that your code works because you're thinking about your parameters first. I guess you could write it in a way where you could go back and add that contract at the end, and then maybe it's not as value- valuable. So I would say it's the same. Brent is continually shoving his fingers in his mouth while we talk. It's just, it's, um, and now he's shoving all but one finger in the middle up his mouth. So I would say they're similar if you're designing that, if you're starting by designing that contract. Because then you're thinking about the at design. Otherwise, it's similar to unit testing or or other asserts.
1: Again, the value thing I'm curious about, uh, your opinion on, is, okay, so the nice thing around TDD is at the end of the day, you get a, a nicely formed architecture. You get a much more maintainable architecture and a unit test suite.
0: Yes, and you also get confidence that when you make changes elsewhere, that if that those tests continue to pass, that you didn't break anything. There's a level of security that comes from a good set of unit tests, whether generated by TDD or not, right. which make it safer to change code faster. The same is true if you have these contracts in place, because you can't change... If you change your contract, you have to change underlying API, you immediately know everything is broken.
1: And you immediately know. It's not you know at compile time not at runtime
0: I believe it I be, I don't know Eiffel I haven't used Eiffel I haven't even played with this so I don't know for sure but anyway that that's the idea okay so if the the question is really do any of the languages we know have designed by contract or something like it and my answer is no I don't know of any that do by design but there's a bunch of there's a bunch of variations of it including the packed tool that you can yep, use for that- this. And I think it's helpful. I, if I remember right, there was someone at Microsoft, uh, I can't remember when, working on drivers in Windows and they were looking at using a contract to enforce interaction between various components in the driver stack. I'm not going to go into how Windows drivers are built because I though I remember it, I'm trying to flush it out of my brain.
1: Yeah, I'm... I'm saying, so to me, it definitely seemed like there's some value proposition with using DBC and I'll go, I probably don't have enough experience on it, okay. but, I, I, right, but, but
0: my, I, my most relevant and recent experience is with PACT, which is okay. a little bit of bolting it on at the end, but still helpful, still helpful, especially when you're, and PACT is kind of made for the microservice world where you have a, a suite of microservices. You want to make sure things are, are complaining well, dude, I don't know. We're, it, I'm gonna you know what we're going use our um, we're gonna use all of our money that we make from a B testing. It's going to take a few years to get here but someday we're gonna fix your nose All right let me let me do another question about the, uh, from about the theory of constraints. All right talks about the old saying a variation of you cannot manage what you cannot me- you can't manage what you can't measure. If you're not measuring you're not managing that's from McDonald's University. His idea is simple. You cannot apply theory of constraints or finding constraint bottlenecks if you are not measuring because the only measurement allows you to ID quantity, quality, or both. Measurement requires instrumentation. Therefore, you cannot measure what you don't instrument with you so far. Once the CICD pipeline is instrumented from end to end, then one can measure, which means one can find bottlenecks, which means you can do something about them. Question, what are the CI/CD pipeline components, and how do you instrument them? How do you improve your situation from those measurements? I've done this a half a dozen times, at least, maybe a dozen, maybe maybe a hundred.
1: Yeah, when I am using Theory of Constraints, I'm usually doing it uh, through through process organization and tickets on the Kanban board.
0: Okay, let's an, let's answer this question instead. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's pretty valid. So, the yeah. idea is uh, if from the moment code is from the moment code is pushed to main, there's a pipeline that goes through before it's in people's running on people's computers in my world. We like that time to be less than an hour, like an hour at the most. Usually, That's for a slow pipeline. And the pieces of that pipeline are the build, testing, deployment to staging, whatever extra testing is going to happen in that staging environment. And we use a staging environment. We're not as good at feature flags as I'd like to be. And then that goes live. The mistake teams can fall into is they'll go, we're going to spend a bunch of time to paralyze testing and make sure the testing phase is faster. But if the testing phase is already only 30 seconds, it's not your bottleneck. So he's right. absolutely right. You want to look at all those pieces. And actually, I should back up a step. In the overall cycle, Like, here's my code ready to go. It has to be, it's going to get reviewed and then built and deployed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, our slowest point is probably getting that code review turned around. And we're gonna measure all the pieces, and I've, I've built little line charts that show the relationship from beginning to end of how big each chunk is. And I'm probably missing some pieces, that's mainly it. And sometimes, There may be other pre-checks. We may have static analysis. There's a sonar cube, uh, pass that runs. We have some security tools that run. So we're going to break all those down. Every, every single thing. And in fact, we use Jenkins for most of our build pipeline and each of those is a separate function. So it makes it pretty easy for us to measure exactly how long each little bit of that whole pipeline goes. But overall, uh, Theory of constraint says we want to mitigate uh, whatever the biggest constraint is until it isn't the biggest constraint anymore. And then right. repeat. Well, for us, the way it works is as I, I hadn't thought about it before I started talking through it, but everything's a job and, or, or a function in Jenkins and, and they all get their own. Like you can look at them in the, even if we didn't measure, if you want to know how long your particular build took, you could look in the UI and see everything that happened along the way and how long it took. Uh, and what we can do from my team overall is get those in aggregate, so we can get a, a, median, a mean and median per repo, per service, and show what that is, and show who's and maybe target like, whoa, this team's build takes an hour. What the hell? And go follow up with them and help them out. But more often than not, they'll come, to, they'll come to me and our team and say, hey, our builds taking an hour. Do you have some people that can help?
1: We do the similar thing. It's, it's essentially that you don't, like the way Larry asked the question right, kind of implies that instrument the CICD pipeline from end to end, which kind of implies a degree of complexity that you may not actually need. A lot of the times if you just go, okay, every everything through the flow has these, these common phases, identify your phases, uh, and then just measure start and end of each phase and the, the, the time in between. There's a lot of systems, like if you recall in the old days, there's like gauntlet systems mm-hmm. that will go and do check-ins and parallelize, right? You also want to measure how long things, if there's a queue, you want to measure how long things are sitting in the queue, right? Because all of this is is idle time that's blocking the thing from going out the door. And even then, like, like what you described was what maybe five distinct different. Yeah, phases? and there,
0: there may be more from build to build. It just depends on what you tr- what you need to do with that build. We may have extra checks you want to do there, and it may be like yeah. one of the static analysis tools is really slow but you just, I guess the way I would instrument that. So the tool is instrumented for us in a way, but it'd be easy. If not, it'd be easy to add it. I've done that before as well. But if like one step was taken inordinately long, you probably want to look at that step and maybe break it down. So you can see which are the long parts of that long step to figure out where to focus. Like if the static analysis step, I'll just pick that example was 45 seconds or a minute, which is kind of a long time but maybe there's five tools that run there. I will look and see if one of those was particularly slow or if, if maybe I have a ton of stuff I want to run and they take a long time and I'm doing all sorts of lookups and take, it takes up two minutes to run that. Maybe we can run it's, it's running off a static code it's static analysis, but that means we can run those in parallel if I need to, if if, if that's my bottleneck.
1: My team, I, I hired a, a new kid, in last February, who who sort of had experience on on in a in a build environment uh, at his prior company, and he wanted to to learn to 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 do data science work. As I think I told you before, I I I do this. I'm full stack, right? Where one way to view it is we're a dev team that specializes in data science. Like I, I operate services, and one of the things I had to have him invent is essentially, hey, I need a, I need a a model build process. Even though models aren't really built in sort of the same traditional fashion, I need a model build process. And what he did is he went to actually ADO uh, and they have a, a great facility there.
0: Active called- Data Objects?
1: No. Um, What's Azure, ADO? Azure DevOps. Oh,
0: Azure DevOps. Oh, by the way, I saw a really cool talk from someone um, from that team talking about it, and even they, in their public talk said it was a stupid name.
1: It, because it is. And the fact that I say ADO and then you're trying geezer,
0: to you're trying to sneak that by me, right?
1: Geezers like us will go, "Oh, active data objects, right <laughs> Which I actually I don't even think anyone uses anymore. So he's strung it together through what they have is um, uh, so Azure DevOps pipelines that so they have infrastructure in there, and so we can independently draw together each individual step. And as, as those steps execute or fail, we automatically get all of that telemetry. So that's that's one thing that's nice in terms of the infra that I am on which is the, the essentially the Azure slash Microsoft stuff that those, those value propositions just now come to us for free. So a lot of it is you don't even need to, if you pick the right pipelining tech, you, you may already have these things and you don't need to go in and, and re-implement. You just need to figure out, okay, where, where is all the, the telemetry being stored for my team's processes?
0: short answer is you just measure the beginning and the end. And then if it's not a number you like, you find more things to measure in between there until you're measuring enough things in that system where you feel like you can find the bottlenecks or you may have to decide that's as fast as we're going to get.
1: Or that's all that's worthwhile. The investment. That's worthwhile. Yeah. yeah,
0: Return on investment. So I want to do the last question, which uh, again is going to involve some stuff we don't use a lot. So it says a number of empirical studies using function points have shown that software defects first arrive in a design during initial requirement gathering and design specification writing. So yes, I think anecdotally we could say, yeah, a lot of times the design is wrong. So the question is, how can you use a theory of constraints instrumenting and measuring the non-technical specification creation part of your projects before any code is actually written? And my answer here is, I'm not sure that theory of constraints, I'm not sure there's a bottleneck. Before I lead you any farther... How would you answer that question?
1: How would you use theory of constraints, instrumenting and measure the non-technical specification creation part of your projects before any actual... Well, so it's essentially, how do we measure whether the non-technical specification part of the project is actually the bottleneck? How would we determine that? that? I think that's kind of the point. Again, I would say... Like obviously, you can't, to the best of my knowledge, you I mean, there might be by now ways to instrument specs. But again, if we think of it as phases with a distinct start and end, then then right a typical Azure process is you're measuring the, the cycle time between an idea, the time it takes for an idea to get out to production. Okay? Now, with that in that in mind. If your team has, like, a deep technical re- uh, requirement gathering phase uh, that's, a, that's a requirement, then you you just say, okay, well, the start time is when the person starts writing this, when they get it done, and you, you evaluate it against everything else in your pipeline. Like, an MVP – I spent a lot of time talking about this with some of my folks. Like, an MVP um, – we wanna get that out and actually use usage and things like that to sort of drive the requirements. So the requirement phase in, in my my team's projects are essentially, hey, what's the our best guess that we wanna bootstrap the final project with, right? What's the minimum set of things that we wanna get out so that we can then start bootstrapping and iterating and, and adjusting our direction. And at the time it takes to, to document that is like 2 to 3 times it takes to get the code out then then we got a problem.
0: Right. And maybe that's worth I'm actually going to just build on that and go off in a, in a little slightly different direction but yeah. I guess it depends if if you're doing work where where it's a long waterfall cycle and you need you need the design approved up front. I've read the research and in projects like that and what I would agree with is for this measurement is this is true for projects where a big design up front is required. As I've mentioned before, my teams all do P50 estimates, I meaning they pick an estimate with 50% probability. And the reason for that is it is a sweet spot between over planning and designing, and just doing something. It works out pretty well. Overall, we can get stuff out faster, but we get it out at a point where we can get feedback through instrumentation to understand if we've built the right thing. So the design we do, the biggest design practice we do is we get everyone very early before we even like day one of the planning is get everyone aligned on the problem we're solving. If everyone agrees, like this is the problem we want to solve, then honestly, that's the bulk of our design. Yeah. And, and the, and some of it comes out of like, which implementation do we choose? But everything focuses on what's the best way to solve this problem for the customer. And then ask questions like, how will we know if the customer is being successful with this solution? And that that drives the instrumentation that we're going to add to make sure that that's being done. And we do that for inter- a lot of internal tools as well as the external stuff we ship. So, And that's kind of it. So in the world I live in, and you for the large part, we're delivering so often that I think we're actually, I hate to do the snowflake argument, but despite the research showing that defects arrive during design, maybe it's the same thing. I'm, I'm all over the place here, but I think services are different. I think when you, if, if you are, and not just services are different, if you practice shipping frequently and are comfortable enough with your data and your ability to turn around that you can ship something that you know is not complete or you know is not ready, but you're okay with that, that gives you a huge competitive advantage. Right. So that's it. That's my design. Like we're shipping. I can't tell you what we're shipping because it's not announced, but my team is shipping something very soon. We were going to soft launch. It got some feedback from the design team said, Hey, before you do it, can you do this, these 10 things, make it pretty. And I said, yeah, we'll do them. We're going to actually do the top few and then we're going to ship and we'll, we'll keep on changing things and gathering feedback. So we want to get that feedback as well. There's the Eric Reese, I think quote that says, show me a product that shipped without any bugs. and I'll show you something that shipped too late. So there's a balance yeah, there. For sure. Like I want for that sure. feedback. I want I want to be feedback driven and real time feedback driven. And I also know we can we can update this particular thing a dozen, 15, 20 times a day if we need to.
1: Yeah. I completely agree. Like part of his discussion in this is right, it kind of presumes. I don't know. To me, it feels a bit waterfally. And uh, I'm wondering. That, I, I don't know right? if
0: it's waterfall. It's it, it's formal.
1: It is formal, right? And if that's part of the if if the requirement gathering stuff, right? You 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 determine when it's enters and exits the phase. And yeah.
0: And I, I would like to point out, and maybe we're wrong. I mean, this reads as formal or waterfall which are, I mean, modern testing is informal and super adaptive. So the fact that he's asking these questions and getting value from the stuff we're talking about and working in a different environment, that's fantastic. And maybe there's a lot more context Larry has here, but uh, I'm actually super happy with the engagement and the questions. I think it's really cool. So if you are out there and you think, yeah, I like you guys are all right, I guess, you know, Alan's kind of a dick and, brent breathes too loud but whatever if there's a question you want to ask just fire it away email twitter one of the three dot com, whatever uh, i'd like to have more of these kinds of questions because it makes us think makes us think about how what we're doing can apply to a bigger part of the bubble
1: right and hopefully it's helpful i guess yeah this is i
0: gotta tell you brent is now slumped way down in his chair all i see i don't even see his eyes i see like just his forehead his yeah, I his get fe- tired his of few strands of hair that he has remaining and uh, the top of his headphones. We have to go. We have to go back to doing the YouTube live casts just so people can see what I have to deal with.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I'll just tell everyone, no matter what you think it is, it's worse. Oh, everyone um, should feel empathy for Ellen.
0: We got like one minute and I'm going to do a plug here. I don't think we've talked. Have we talked since I did the? Oh my God, we haven't since I did the AMA with uh, Test Bash Home.
1: No, actually, we haven't talked. Oh, since we should have then. talked
0: about that because it was good. Uh, did
1: I? Yeah. Uh, uh, so I
0: I lost uh, my. Let me miss... tell you my feature of automation, and you won't get a chance to make a. Uh, do I have it here? Let me. Let me. So
1: while you're loading it up or or thinking about it, I'll I'll say. Right. Ms. Crispin, right, weighed in and and absolutely voiced that you were killing it on the discussion. But yeah, I totally forgot about that. So, yay, yay, Alan.
0: I totally forgot what they were, but let's talk about that next time a little bit. And in the meantime, if you're a member of a pro member of Ministry of Testing, go check out the talk and send us some feedback and questions. I was not um, uncontroversial.
1: You were not, but people un- thought.
0: People thought I made sense anyway, which is great.
1: <laughs> well, so that's kind of our our thing. Like we're like we actually think we're not actually stating anything controversial. We're just stating things that are. Well,
0: occur. I was a little bit looking forward, but uh, anyway, oh. let's talk about it next gotcha. time. I got to run. So uh, once again, I am the one and only not the one and only i am the uh, i'm one of the world's allens
1: am i am not see you later everybody bye